Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? It's a real pleasure to have Dr. Afton Halloran as my guest today. As an independent consultant in sustainable food system transitions and a transdisciplinary scientist, she has worked on food and agriculture issues with organizations such as the World Bank, the World Health Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and the Nordic Council of Ministers. Afton is a consultant researcher for the Food Planet Price Secretariat, has co-authored and edited three books about sustainable food systems, and holds a research position at the University of Copenhagen. Afton is also now the host of the Nordic Talks podcast, the number one producer of Nordic inspirational podcasts on sustainability. Afton grew up on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, but is now based in Copenhagen, Denmark. After completing an honors BSc at the University of British Columbia, Afton studied at the University of Copenhagen, where she completed a Master of Science and then a PhD. In this episode, we talk about global food security and sustainability, and the link between climate-induced food insecurity and climate refugees, the reality that there are no silver bullets to the critical environmental challenges we face, but at the same time, there are still a number of positive solutions to our problems that are lights at the end of the tunnel and that it is not all gloom and doom. We talk about what gives Afton hope and keeps her going when things look dark, and what advice she would offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative and maintaining their hope. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Afton. So why don't we start off by talking about when your interest in sustainability and sustainable food systems emerged and how it grew to become your passion and career? Yeah, it's a very good question because I think it's important to know people's origin stories and how they actually get into the work that they're doing. So just to give a little bit of background of myself. So I grew up on Vancouver Island in a very rural environment in the countryside. And I always knew that I wanted to work with food and agriculture and kind of exactly what uh, I explored that, uh, looking at being a veterinarian or actually looking at being a dietitian or, or what that would be, because I knew that this was important work, even though I would say there were there was not so much encouragement to go into the field of agriculture. Um, I mean, I'm 33 years old, but even when I was in high school, it didn't, it wasn't a desirable career. I mean, not a lot of parents were pushing for their kids to be kind of go down that path. But, you know, as I kind of got older and, and uh, started to learn a lot more about the, the impact that uh, the food that we eat has on the environment, has on society, has on the economy, you know, all of these very com complex challenges that come up when we talk about agricultural production systems and food production that made me really curious about, 
you know, okay, what kind of path can I carve for myself? And, you know, the path wasn't clear at all. Like, basically, you know, a lot of people think when you go into food and agriculture, you become a farmer or you become maybe a food engineer or something like that. And that wasn't for me at all. You know, I wanted to actually work with these kind of complex challenges. So I went to the University of British Columbia in my bachelor's and I and I followed this really interesting, basically, bachelor's program, which was we all called it in the program, like choose your own adventure science. And you could really make it. Yeah, you could really make it what you wanted it to be. And so we did have to specialize in like a, a, a region of the world, a natural resource and a language. And that really fit who I was because I, I was interested in languages. I was interested in, you know, understanding different cultures, learning from them, but also to see agriculture, not just in a very kind of uh, clear cut way, but also to understand the, re you know, natural resource use as well as a part of that. So I guess it, it, that journey has led me on all sorts of horizontal and uh, uh, paths in different directions, up and down. But I think it really has suited who I am to also be adapted to the changes that are that come and you know throw us off course, let's say. But also to be resilient and to understand that we constantly need to adapt and understand the world around us if we actually want to do our jobs well and make an impact. So, you know, I've dabbled in many things, but it's always been in the world of food. And I can, I've also been really interested in learning from other fields as well, uh, whether that be, you know, urban planning, for example, because I think there's a lot to, to be taught from learning from these different fields and, and that we can implement into our own fields so this is, uh, I guess, a little bit of a, a history of, of how I got to where I am. But what I've learned from all of this is that if you want to be, you know, a systemic thinker or a transdisciplinary scientist or whatever that may be, you you will never follow a clear path. And that's OK. Um, and I think we also need to tell young people that because the career options that are coming up today were not maybe even possible a couple of years ago, uh, simply because the world around us is changing so quickly. Was there a moment where you realized that it wasn't just about food and yeah. nutrition, but that we're in the middle of a crisis, a sustainability and climate change crisis, and food would be a huge piece of that, both in terms of the challenge, mm -hmm. but also in terms of the possible consequences of finding solutions? Did the yeah. sustainability piece uh, uh, grab you at the very beginning or was it something that emerged as you studied it more? Um, well, my kind of some of my and initially when I was when I was much younger, it was really around nutrition. And then it became much clearer to me, even from a young age, that our diet has a huge influence on the environment. So it wasn't just our personal health on an individual level, but on a on a much more like, higher level, so an you know ecosystem. So the level. reciprocal relationship between us and the environment, not just how the environment fe can feed us. Yes, exactly. And I would say you know that was of course 
you know, there were, there was discussion about that at that time, but it was certainly not out in the open like it is now in, in the way that we, you know, we, we can read about this more in the news, the media is covering it more, the science has become clearer, um, that you actually have many organizations that are, have incorporated this into, uh, into the work that they're doing. So I think, I mean, at the time it was less clear, but it made sense to me. And at least, you know, I had people around me saying, you know, go for it and, and see what you can, you know, where you can go. But I think the turning point was really actually going outside of Canada. Right. And experiencing, let's say, harsher environments. So one of the, the first kind of travels that I, I did um, in the global south was to first to Burkina Faso and then to Ghana. And, you know, understand, I mean, there I was actually working on a on another project that was related to, more to education, but just seeing the food system there and talking to, you know, people in rural areas and how they encountered the repercussions of climate change every day because their crops are failing, because there's droughts. Um, and, you know, having, they had these lived experiences that were not so close to me, maybe in a, in a place growing up on Vancouver Island, of course, you know, there's challenges, but not in the same extremes that are experienced in other places in the world. So really understanding what people it's people's lives are and what it's like to live in a in these kinds of environments and how that is it really affects your you know just this fundamental act of putting food on your table to me that really hit home and I think that uh, that was one of those kind of learnings that you can't get uh, in university you can't get through reading you have to experience it yourself and also just to have the empathy and under and try to at least understand minutely what it's what it's like to be in that position so then you know that really sparked my 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 interest of okay how can we turn this around how we can we use the food system to actually do good and, you know, make the world a better place, um, whether it's through actually having much more sustainable agricultural production or, let's say, being able to to help farmers become even more economically sustainable in their in what they're doing and having, you know, that that human dimension to it, not just seeing it from an environmental perspective, but seeing these as interconnected. So now as an independent food sustainability consultant, uh, working with NGOs and multiple agencies, what are the most important lessons learned or insights you've taken away about how we can both increase awareness of climate change related issues, but also design to limit and adapt to them? <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big that's question. That's a big question. You're getting into the big <laughs> we questions. We just have the whole. Oh we just God. have the rest of the interview as that question. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the biggest things that that uh, I would say very simply is about communication, right? So, being clear and what what that you know what were we moving towards? What is what is the ultimate goal? Because I think still this is something that we're trying to figure out. We know that we have to make these kinds of changes. But it's actually, okay, well, if we are creating a new system or making a transition, then what are we moving towards? And I think that that is important no matter where you are. We need to know that we're moving towards a system that where we will be able to flourish, where we'll have lifestyles that we are happy to live, where we know that we will be prosperous. 
And I think that that's one of the biggest things that I've learned in the work that I'm doing, that because these are major challenges, climate change is a huge challenge. It is an existential crisis that we're having right now. Um, but at the same time, if we frame it in kind of this doom and gloom situation, then I don't think you're going to get people on board and make those changes. So communicating in a way that helps people realize that they should do their part, but also up on, not on even on an individual level, but also on a, on a much larger level of how the governments have, have a role to play in this and to contribute to, to making those transitions. So maybe not the response that you've expected, because I don't think there's a silver bullet solution, but actually just consolidating all this information that we have, because I think we've gotten really good with the science, right? Is now it's the action that has to happen. Now it's how do how do we affect action? Yeah. Uh, along that path, what about the most promising policy strategies and technologies for helping us reduce the environmental harm that you referred to? Yeah, no, that's a, another really, really good question. And I think there's, luckily, I mean, that's the beauty of working with food systems. You can see multiple entry points. So it's not just about the production. It's also about consumption, the way we, the way we actually uh, process food, these kinds of things. So one of the things that I like, an example that I really like is around public procurement. And maybe... Because now I live, uh, I live in Denmark, in Copenhagen, and maybe I'm a little bit influenced by what's happening here uh, in this part of the world. But municipalities, also national governments, they have a huge amount of power in terms of what they procure in terms of meals. So if you think about it, what is served in canteens and schools, and in some cases, and maybe not necessarily in the Canadian model, but in in many parts of Europe, you have you know um, school lunches, uh, you have canteens in workplaces. If you have in the public sector, which is massive in this part of the world, you have the provision of meals on a daily basis to to your workers or in hospitals, let's say, and. You can influence dietary behavior. Uh, let's say you're trying to help people to eat more healthy and more sustainable food. Well, you can actually procure that and put that on offer and, and basically enable people to taste something that maybe they're not going to eat in their own home, but they're going to eat that when they go to the canteen um, in their workplace or, or, or at their school. So this is happening actually quite a bit in the Nordic region, the huge, like where you see municipalities making tough decisions around what they're going to serve. So let's say reducing the red meat that they serve and only serving it occasionally, and then really increasing the amount of uh, fruits and vegetables that they're serving, or let's say they want to serve more seasonal vegetables and things like that. So this is I, I think there's a lot of power in that. And it actually means that you are influencing behavior, not in a way that you're telling people what to do because you are giving them the option. Um, so it's more kind of in line with like nudge theory than actually kind of giving very clear dietary recommendations and saying you shouldn't eat this, you should eat this. So that's kind of one uh, one area that I think is is quite interesting. And Another one is also maybe less scientifically grounded, but maybe looking more about behavior change is really like understanding uh, food culture and the evolution of food culture. So 
Again, another example that I've been working a lot with here in my work with the, um, the Nordic Food Policy Lab of the Nordic Council of Ministers. So it's a intergovernmental organization here in the Nordic region. And we've been looking at this um, massive food culture transformation that has happened in the last 15 years here, um, where it was actually kind of from the bottom up, where it was led by by chefs as opposed to politicians and talking about, okay, what would a, would Nordic food look like in a more modern context? So not just, you know, let's say pork and potatoes or or something like that, but actually in a more uh, modernized way and how that would be. And, and when you say Nordic food, you mean food that responds to the climatic conditions of that region and the and the geography and all the Every, soil types and so forth? Yeah, exactly. Representing this region. So what is what is here? Not only looking at this region in, in a box and seeing it as separate from others, but understanding that there are there's so many things that have fallen out of tradition here over time as the food system and food production became much more industrialized. A clear example of that would be like seaweed. I mean, look at the coastline around all the Nordic countries yeah. and seaweed is not on the table. And then you go to Asia and, you know, I, I've spent significant amounts of time in, in Japan and visited Korea and China. And, and you go into those cuisines and eat and consume, you know, different um regional um, delicacies and seaweed turns turns up quite a bit. So why have we moved away from those kinds of foods when those are actually the ones we should be eating more of? So when you have this kind of bottom-up led approach that is, you know, talking about how can we create these delicious meals with what we have around us and revisit some of these traditions in a more modern way, that's another way of trying to kind of uh, approach sustainability in food systems. Interesting. Seaweed is, is not only, I think, really tasty, <laughs> but it's extremely nutritious. It's got proteins, omega fats, and it sucks CO2 out mm -hmm. of the atmosphere. It's, yeah. a, it's a fantastic uh, carbon sink. It is. It is. And actually, I mean, it's, uh, it is the rainforest of the sea. And if you kind of look at it that way, and again, we've dismissed a lot of these foods, um, that are right in front of our noses. And this is not particular to uh, this region, I would say. There's a lot of other parts of the world that, you know, just because of all sorts of very strange uh, trade relationships and, and economic models that we end up eating much more food that comes from other parts of the world than, than what is in our own backyards. But at the same time, uh, there's so much to explore. So that's kind of one, another example, kind of two other examples I want to give. And the other one is um, related to, okay, so how do you actually train systems thinking in maybe the unusual suspects in terms of food systems? So um, my partner, he actually runs a food lab at the Technical University of, of Denmark, and he works basically hand in hand with engineers. So he has a background uh, as, as a chef, but also working with like gastronomy and also working with, um, with sustainable agriculture. So now he's trying to bring all of that into the university atmosphere and, and to the university environment and trying to help engineers to actually, when they're designing, when it, whether it's a 
kitchen appliance or whether they're designing some kind of agricultural equipment or something like that, then how do they actually have this more systems lens and understanding that they're not just designing this one thing, but they're actually feeding into new behaviors or kind of things that we should be doing less of, like promoting maybe unsustainable diets or kind of lock-ins into maybe keeping um, agriculture production uh, in in a way that is... um, that's working against nature as opposed to with it. So uh, I, I don't think this exists anywhere else in the world, this kind of model of, of really trying to promote systems thinking in engineers in relation to the food system. And then finally, the other one is another kind of lab that exists and what I, something that I've been a part of. It, it's called the, the Nordic Food Policy Lab. And I mentioned it before, but it just to say it again, because it is a um, initiative under the Nordic Council of Ministers, which is the like official representation of Nordic cooperation, so between the the different Nordic countries. And so we um, under that project, we were actually able to set up a lab and test lab thinking around policy. So new ideas around policy, crazy ideas, running policy labs of you know, really talking about the future, being a bit more speculative, looking at different methods that we could use in in designing the future of food policy. So I thought that is also an example of something relatively unique when we're talking about just shifting out of the status quo and the you know the current model of things and looking at other possibilities of course there's tons of different kinds of agricultural practices that i could name but i wanted to basically highlight some things that are less known what do you think are the best ways to drive large-scale change and large-scale action the kind needed to move us in the right direction in solving climate change and what are Mm. the limitations to affecting change do you think um well, I, I think, again, just kind of speaking to the path that I've followed, I think we need more people who are are able to build bridges to be able to communicate between systems. So in my daily work, we're talking about transformation, we're talking about transitions. And if you can't actually communicate between, let's say, the system you're moving away from to the system that you're moving towards, then I think you have a big problem because there will be a handoff or there is a handoff. And to make sure that you're minimizing conflict, that you're minimizing tension between these older ways and newer ways of doing things, I think you need people who are well-versed in kind of understanding that world and, and operating in that space. And it's really interesting because... You know, this is, I guess, you kind of learn by doing. And because I've dabbled in so many different areas, trying to learn from different, all sorts of different fields, I think what that's helped me to do is to realize that in these complex challenges, just listening and understanding where people are coming from, having empathy, and also being able to take a lead are all these kinds of things that you can't really teach. You just have to, you you have to learn this. So these are these soft skills, I think, that are so important uh, in, in these kinds of, in this kind of work. And so if we could teach that, I mean, if, if we could help incorporate that into education systems of, you know, how do we become better bridge builders, especially in the times that we live in right now, um, helping people to understand that that can actually be a living 
Um, that is something that I do. That's my job to navigate through these different worlds and translate or, or, or kind of be a knowledge broker, I guess, is another way of saying it. So I think for me, that is one way to drive large scale change. Um, another way is I think also like framing the future as desirable. And I said that before, but I think I should say it again because we, are so good about framing the future as very dystopian and that, you know, it, it, things are going to look grim, um, that even despite the changes that we make, um, you know, it's going to, it's going to look worse than it is. A vision to pull people forward. Yes, exactly. I, I, I you know, I would say that we lack these, these very positive, um, visions to aspire towards. I, I think there's there's definitely some great thinkers in that space, but I don't think there's enough of that um, coming out. So if we're actually going to drive this large-scale change and we're actually going to combat climate change and we're actually going to make our food system more sustainable and you know radically change the way we, we grow our food and what we eat and all these kinds of things, then it better be good. I mean, people would argue, what's the point of, of living if this is going to be just grim and, and, a, and a horrible world to live in? So you have to give people, it's not only hope, but something that they're aspiring towards to show that things can get better as opposed to worse. So I think that the framing is so important. So that's kind of one of the things. And another one is to have this sense of urgency, but also to be patient and not, I mean, the transitions that are happening now from, you know, the old ways to the to newer ways, it can be really frustrating. And I think it's easy to, to give up. Um, so looking back in history, understanding that, you know, being <laughs> that large scale social changes happen over time. Uh, so my favorite example of that, and of course, this is like, you know, there's a lot more to it than this, but it's just looking at the scientific revolution and looking at what Galileo Galilei went through. So, you know, when he kind of gave birth to modern science and, and you know, was his belief that, you know, the earth revolved around the sun. So he was fighting against the flow of all of society and against the church. And, and he was coming up with something that was completely uh, radical at that time that we now know today is just something we we believe in and something that we know to be fact. But at that time, he was going he was going against the you know the the church, which was basically in charge of everything. And so I think that to see that all of that work that he had done and and his sacrifices in a way, then now he he fueled that scientific revolution that we and modern science that we kind of know today. He didn't get to experience that. We don't want to see things on that timeline. We need urgent change. But just again, history will teach us that this change has come. Um, but again, we have to reach those tipping points when we actually have, we have enough people on board to realize this is important and this is the way forward. So again, the sense of urgency um, is not great enough. But again, I think people they can't lose faith and and get frustrated in this. And you're emphasizing not getting overwhelmed by the challenges. What about some of the opportunities in maintaining and increasing a sustainable food supply in the face of escalating climate change impacts? 
what do you see as the promising opportunities that are sort of the light at the end of the tunnel that can draw us forward? <laughs> well, there's lots of, luckily, there's lots of lights at the end of the tunnel. And I would well, that's say, good like, to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, some of the interesting things that are coming out that really inspire me is that we are seeing, well, I, I mean, many would say this is not happening fast enough. I guess I try to have both the, um, be realistic, but also to understand that that there are changes happening around us. So one is the dietary shift that's happening right now in, in many high-income countries. What we're seeing is that the information of the environmental impacts of the choices that we make around food, that we actually have a lot of agency there. And so we're seeing shifts mainly like in millennials towards more flexitarian diets or sometimes vegan or vegetarian diets. But there's this greater interest amongst young people in what they eat. And so I think that for me, that shows that um, generational change happens relatively quickly. Uh, so I always give the example, you know, when I was in high school, <laughs> I was a vegetarian <laughs> and I was the only vegetarian in my school. And now if you walk into a high school, at least here in Copenhagen and, and just hearing from friends who have kids in high school, that you're a minority in some cases if you're not a vegetarian. And, and I'm not saying that vegetarianism is the only way forward. I think that most people would prefer just reducing their meat consumption, at least in the in the short term. But just to say that this is within a generation or, or less than a generation that these things have changed. Uh, so that's a massive opportunity to kind of understand from our own dietary choices what we can do. I think also other opportunities are around one of the big kind of missed opportunities, I would say, is around like marine foods. So more more people are looking to that now of Understanding that we are really good at exploiting certain parts of the ocean. Uh, let's, I mean, just say fisheries, <laughs> for exa example, fish stocks. But what about all the other foods that can come out of the ocean? Uh, there's so many things that we don't eat that are really abundant and can also uh, regenerate uh, very quickly. Like, again, the seaweed example is always good because there you have this uh, pretty fast growing food source. You can cultivate it. Uh, and you can cultivate it away <laughs> from the ocean as well. Like you can, yeah, exactly. you can simply, all you need is water and light and algae. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These are things that I think we're, we're only scratching the surface there. And there's some great work going on um, different parts of the world. Yeah. That's another one, a kind of untapped opportunity. I, I, I um, was reading in your biography that you've been doing research on insects as a potential protein source. Yeah, yeah, I have. And there, like, it's interesting there. So again, it comes down to food culture. So it depends on what we're talking about. Is it short term? Is it medium term? Is it long term? So I've been working a lot with um, for the past eight years with edible insects, not all insect species because they're not all edible, um, but about 2000 plus uh, are. That's a few. Uh, which is much more than than the species of, of other kinds of livestock that we consume, which is just a handful if you think about it. So I, am, amazing diversity there. We can only farm very few of those species. Well, like so a few is how many approximately? Uh, um, right now is about about 10 species have been domesticated. 
for human consumption yeah. or for animal feed. That's an interesting notion of insects as domesticated. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible when you kind of start <laughs> framing this uh, as if they are livestock, because they, I mean, they're many livestock. That's what they are if you are farming them. But we've, I mean, human beings, if you look back in time, um, you know, 3,000 years ago, we domesticated silkworms uh, for, for silk. Uh, so, you know, they were, they came from the wild. And there's still wild silkworms as well, but the domesticated species, um, that, that has a long history. Also bees. I mean, if we look at right. how we've uh, domesticated the honeybee. So <laughs> again, it's a really, I, I would say this is a really interesting area to be working in because in human history, we only have those two kind of examples of domestication of insects. And now we're actually domesticating more species. So I, I've been working specifically with crickets, um, which are, you know, consumed by in, in many parts of the world, but usually from the wild. So this whole notion of, of domesticating a, a cricket uh, species is new. I mean, if for human consumption is about 20 years old, this, the, the whole concept. So actually working on this is, is kind of in a small way, in a very small way, it's a bit revolutionary because if you also think about livestock, we have the last time we domesticated an animal uh, for uh, that we are farming was was a very, very long time ago. So in our own way, we're doing something that I think is very interesting and fascinating to study. But insects are, I would say, in the protein transition that we're going through right now and I'm trying to understand how to shift away from um, mainly ruminant animals, so that's the that's your goats and your and your sheep and your cows, and we pick on them. Uh, it may seem very unfair, but we pick on them because they are you know physiologically and biologically different. They produce methane in their digestion processes, so that is why they're different. Let's say than a a, a pig or a chicken. So this is why we talk a lot about, okay, eat less red meat, both for your health, but also for the planet. Then what are, what do you know, a lot of people will say, where do I get my protein from? Well, you can get it from many other sources. Um, it's not just steak, <laughs> um, unless you're like a steakitarian or something like that, but looking at how to diversify our protein sources. So insects could play a really interesting role there, but they're, they're not the only one. And are, they, are they scalable? One of the big yeah. challenges is we've got huge areas of the planet where the agriculture is going to be destroyed by a, a warming climate, probably over the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to find ways to feed ourselves that are innovative uh, and potentially new. Is, yeah. is insects one of those? Can they scale? And to the, I mean, Aside from culture, when, when everyone gets really hungry, I, I don't think they're going to worry too much about, you know, I don't like insects. Well, people are going to learn to like them. But are, is it a scalable uh, yeah. food source? Definitely, yeah. That's it's, fantastic. I mean, it's already happening. I mean, there's a couple barriers there. One is just the capital to, to, to invest. Um, and, you know, in the past five years has been this huge boom in in investment in actually insect farming operations at a very large scale and that's not just that's not just in europe that's in north america that's in different parts of africa and asia for example so it's happening around the world 
Um, and kind of, you know, luckily, a lot of people working in this space and companies have been able to really break that barrier. Another has been policy, simply because this is a novel food in many countries in the at least in the global north, we don't have that culture behind us. So it's deemed as like a new food source, which needs to be regulated in a specific way. Canada is actually interesting there because the food authorities, they recognize that as something that is part of the tradition of many other cultures, Canada being a very diverse nation. But in Europe, there's been a little bit longer process where actually having the regulation to include this, it just be able to sell it as a food has taken has taken some time, but it's actually gone pretty quick in relation to how things, how long things could usually take. So there are large factories. Most of them focus on the, actually uh, where the big money would be in terms of where you could make the most profit. And that is producing insects for animal feed. A lot of people would say they would be much happier to eat a, a pig or a chicken or a fish that is eaten insect larvae than actually eat an insect directly. Most people don't question what the animals they eat eat themselves. Are eating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so, so that becomes is the part transition. of a, food, a new food chain. Yeah, exactly. That is part of the transition and it can definitely reduce the environmental impacts associated with animal production. And then, you know, again, this is an imp- incremental step towards uh, let's say having a much more sustainable and diversified um, protein supply, hopefully. So that's coming. And, you know, even, for example, in the Netherlands, you can get, um, you can buy eggs from chickens that had eaten black soldier fly larvae, for example. There's experiments with with uh, salmon and things like that. So it's, um, it's coming and it's, well, it's already here. Uh, the future is here. But most of my work around insects for human consumption is actually in countries where this is a is part of the food culture already. Um, so that's mainly in sub-Saharan Africa. The uh, COVID epidemic that we're in the midst of right now has demonstrated how quickly supply chains can get fractured or shut mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. So cities are looking at how they can be more resilient. And one of the resiliencies is, of course, food supply. Uh, in yeah. the last podcast episode, I talked to Henry Gordon Smith about urban agriculture. How far out is the tipping point when urban agriculture will be mainstream as a mode of food production, do you think? Yeah, that's, uh, it depends on where you are in the world. If you look to the, the global south, there, urban agriculture has been in many ways, one, a necessity for a lot of um, urban dwellers. Two, it has never gone away from the city center because in many cases, these cities have urbanized much later than in Europe or, or North America. Um, so it's already very much an integrated part. So um, some years ago, I was working in Tanzania where uh, in, in Dar es Salaam, so the largest city there, not the capital, but the largest city, they were growing about 80% of the, the leafy green vegetables that were consumed in the city. And about 60% of the eggs and the milk came from the peripheral areas of the city. So they, they were actually like a, a world leader, you could say, in um, urban uh, production systems. But interestingly enough, the work that I was doing there was actually trying to understand how you 
institutionalize uh, urban agriculture. So it was it wasn't recognized by the government as an as a legitimate land use. And that was problematic in many ways. One, because um, a lot of people depended on this for their um, for their livelihoods. And so not actually having it and not being recognized, they were really like walking on 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 thin ice because, every, you know, at any given day they could be shut down. They could have their land removed from them. A lot of them were operating even on on land that wasn't theirs. So it, it was it was really um, there's a lot of instability there, you could say. But also, too, is that if you don't recognize this and you you include it as a legitimate land use, then it can be removed very quickly. And so as these cities rapidly urbanized, I mean, many cities in Africa have have very, very high urbanization rates. So you lose this. And so where, you know, the food supply, um, because infrastructure is 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 lacking uh, because it might take a long time to get food in from the rural areas to the city. Then all of a sudden you're you're removing this nutritious and also profitable food source away from people. Um, so that was uh, that was fascinating to see and experience because it was very different than what's happening in the let's say northern Europe or in in Canada where we're trying to put. Well, not everyone, but some of, some people want to put food production back in the city because we've really we've we've been we hasn't been a part of the city or well or, also <laughs> we've 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 paved over and put suburbs over most of our productive farmland <laughs> yeah. in, in North America. Yeah, we've been really good at that. And and that was yeah. <laughs> that was like always when I when I was working with um, different city officials and and some uh, really interesting people I my my pitch to them is like, look, you can be a world leader if you if you maintain that land in the city. I mean, because all these cities in North America and Europe, a lot of them are trying to like get that land back and and put it into production, and this is seen as progress, right? But the hard thing is that you know when when you're an urban planner in in um, Dar es Salaam, let's say the paradigm associated with what um, you know urban planning and 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 a progressive city is it doesn't include leafy green vegetables in the middle of the city uh, because yeah. simply concrete buildings it's um it's like a lot of infrastructure we realized that we kind of took a step in a in a wrong direction in many cases where actually having uh, producing some of the the food ourselves in, in an urban environment makes sense but i could also say here like it depends on how you measure it, right? It doesn't always make sense, let's say, from an economic perspective. But maybe, and and some of the work that I've done here in Copenhagen uh, around urban agriculture was actually looking at its social function. Um, so definitely, it's you know, it makes more sense to buy your your vegetables or, or whatever from a supermarket or from you know a rural grown in a rural area. But when it came to just bringing people together about integration, about community, these kinds of things, and it had a really important role. So the research that I was doing was really looking at how this multifunctionality of, of urban agriculture, not just to see it as, as the yields that come out of it, but also to understand that this plays an important role in cities or can play an important role in cities, and that 
you know, municipal governments actually can can find ways to to you know fit this in. One is a land use or or as a way of, of you know programming. Um, for example, it can fall under many different uh, departments. So we've seen like you know school gardens become more common here. Uh, I think Canada's actually. Uh, many Canadian cities are much further ahead in just North America in, in general is much more, much further ahead and kind of trying to understand where different food could be produced in different parts of the city. Uh, I remember going to Montreal some years ago and seeing this massive glass house on top of one of the flat roofed buildings and they were producing a lot of food. Oh, was, the, the loofah farms. Yeah, loofah farms. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that is coming here in Europe. I know that there's a really large farm in Belgium, for example, doing similar work. Um, but I think, again, it's just what is the driver? I think you have to understand what is driving this. Is it more of um, connecting people back to nature? Is it necessity? Um, another one of the things that I find really fascinating is like, how all the like in, in terms of abandoned spaces in cities there's a lot of unused space and there's this great example from paris um in this one uh, arrondissement in the city they they basically um had all this parking space uh under one of the housing blocks and you know they're trying to discourage people from using the, to having cars in the city and so fewer and fewer people were using this underground parking lot and so this uh, this group of people formed this company and they started to actually cultivate mushrooms in this underground parking lot. And not only mushrooms, but also like radicchio and other like darkness loving. Using crops. LED lights as yeah. a light source. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need sunlight. Exactly. And there's also yeah. like there's so many examples of this. So there's another company um, using an old bunker, like a World War II bunker in London, and they're growing underground. There's also a company, actually an insect farming uh, company that's trying to produce in a, an old mine, like a sh uh, basically the mine is the mine shaft has gone out of use. And so they're trying to see how they could grow underground. So I, I think that in the parts of the world that we're living in, I think that like just understanding that these unused spaces can provide temporary, if not permanent spaces for, for urban production. What about the huge challenge of the increasing number of climate refugees? As the impacts of climate change mm. begin to really bite, the UN is now forecasting that there will be somewhere in the order of 250 million climate refugees by 2050, and that's probably an underestimate at the current rate of climate change acceleration. Clearly, this is one of the most critical challenges that the world faces in the future. What are some of the approaches to meeting this challenge that sustainable agriculture can lead? Yeah. I mean, one of the questions here is, Yes, uh, people are, are migrating. Why are they migrating? Partially because of climate change. So what are they moving away from? They're actually, you know, a, a lot of people, most people are moving away from unproductive fields, um, from drought, that uh, from food insecurity. So agriculture has a huge connection to this problem because this is being, um, if you think about the small-scale farmers that inhabit many of the countries where people are coming from, that, you know, we have to understand the connection between agriculture. So 
yes, as people move into into refugee camps, how do you actually like this is not you don't want people to stay there their whole lives. And unfortunately, there are now camps where you have multiple generations of people where people have been there so long that this is now their home. It's not just a temporary space. So how do you I mean, in that issue, looking at the short term, how do you help people to produce food in, in, in a way that is helps them to diversify their diets? Because most diets are very monotonous in the in the in the camps um, because people are more dependent on aid. So one of the things that where I've been working is around insect production in refugee camps, which is a very could be very promising an insect. Farming is interesting because you don't need so much space, so you don't need to have own land. So in a refugee situation, I mean, that's quite important. In terms of resource use, you don't need so much water, um, which again is important because a lot of these camps are are located in, in very dry areas. Um, arid yeah, areas, in, in yes. In very, very arid places. So, the, you know, access to water, I mean, that's a, really a luxury. And also just in terms of, of feed, you know, what you actually feed them. The, they could be that you have, you know, some of the organic waste uh, things that like peels and things like that you could feed to the, the insects. So you could have, in a way, a slightly circular system. But um, again, there, there actually is a camp that's doing this. So there's, um, there's only one camp that I know of called Kakuma Refugee Camp and it's situated in, in uh, north uh, Western Kenya, and there they actually partnered with some of the colleagues that I've been working with in Kenya, and um, and also uh, the University of Copenhagen, and the um, an organization called Danish Church Aid to actually set up some cricket farms and train a lot of the families in the camp who were willing and wanted to do it. Uh, to to farm crickets, and so this is just starting. It's it's again, time will tell if this is a success, but it is one way of hopefully ensuring a a healthy animal source protein for people living in the camps. But again, I mean, I think it's important to also zoom out and look at the root causes because what people are moving away from and making you know helping people to to also contribute through their actions to uh, to stopping climate change and 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 the, these drivers it, to make sure that you know people can actually stay in their in their home countries nobody wants to leave where they come from i mean the migration crisis is is really hard for many of us to understand because we've never had to just you know pick up and leave um where we are and make that huge decision to actually leave everything behind and and to walk into the unknown. So I think this is, again, uh, where this human, you have to really think about the human aspect here. And most of us have not experienced this. Uh, most of your listeners have probably, you know, me included, I've never experienced what that is like. Yeah, and I think it's one of the big challenges we face. But as you said, food has a really important role to play. What do you think is missing from the discussion of climate change, Afton? Are there any other questions or better questions we should be asking ourselves? Um, well, I would say most people are looking for uh, silver bullet solutions. And unfortunately, we don't have them. They don't exist. It's what will actually 
help us address climate change is a multitude of solutions. And so luckily, I mean, there are there are lots of different things out there. It will be a combination of technology and, you know, much more kind of grassroots solutions that are that are much more to do with how we grow food and, and the more on a method basis. But I think that that is just one one of the things that that is incorrect in a lot of people's thinking of it's just going to be that one thing that is like insects is going that's going to save the world. I would say that's uh, for me, like really what's missing from that conversation. And other questions that we should be asking, I, I think it is really what you know, what kind of what what future do we want to live and what are we going to do about it in our lives to ensure that we actually can help uh, secure that future for for ourselves and future generations um being able to think along longer periods of time than just in the short term i think will hopefully help us kind of reframe some of the decisions that we make and who's missing from the discussion are there people who should be playing more important roles that are currently not participating? Are there people we should be listening to who we're not paying attention to at the moment uh, and should be? Who needs a seat at the table that doesn't have one? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who don't get a seat at the table. And it's very interesting, I would say, that in a lot of, in a lot of the, the different kind of fora that I've been in before, one of the biggest things that people are saying is and notice is they look around them like, hey, where's the farmers? Where we're talking about agriculture. Food, where are the farmers? Yeah. <laughs> where are the farmers? Um, but it's I mean, again, there's not all farmers, you know, are, are created alike. So um we also have to understand what kind of farmers and, and you know, generally when we talk about, you know, big ag uh, they're pretty well represented because maybe they have lobbies or or that they have there's interest organizations that are representing them. But what about you know the, the smaller scale or medium scale farmers that don't have that representation, uh, who who don't have the possibility to travel and have their voices heard in these you know pretty important decision making processes. There are, of course, organizations that do represent uh, small-scale farmers' interests, but they're, I mean, they're so diverse uh, that it's hard to just give, you know, let one, let a few organizations give them a voice. So around that, um, a lot of colleagues and I have been talking about, well, how do, you know, how how do we make sure that the processes that we're developing and in, in order to be inclusive actually, you know, involve farmers or involve children or involve ind indigenous people or people uh, of color or just citizens at large and that a lot of the way we design let's say decision making processes is just very it, it works well for the people who design them but not for the people who should be participating so actually being very mindful of how we engage with different stakeholder groups and actually being flexible and coming to people where they are is in incredibly important and and I don't think large scale change will be possible without that. So there's a really cool example. Um there was um a food and farming commission in the UK uh was just really looking at a lot of the different issues that were coming up in uh, food and agriculture, uh, also talking about okay, what would the future look like? Uh just really exploratory work. 
that would, you know, hopefully lead to also um, policy. And so this uh, this Food and Farming Commission, they they knew that if they just had these kind of meetings in London that, you know, they would get the usual suspects sometimes, but they wouldn't get the people that were really engaged with kind of on on the ground work, the practitioners, all these people. So they arranged a bike tour and they actually cycled the whole country and they went to all these communities um, and really just talk to people in their kitchens and their barns in their fields and in their shops and just really met people where they were and where they were comfortable and i think that if we don't make those kinds of efforts to talk to people then we cannot represent them so i guess for me like one of the things that really irks me is is that you know i come from a rural area and I've had interactions with farmers and, and you know, I, I from around the world, not just in, on Vancouver Island, but around the world, very comfortable with talking to farmers, but not a lot of people might uh, are comfortable with that because it may be like maybe they're so far removed from the, that world that they they would much prefer to be in an office or something like that. So. We got to break down some of these barriers, um, and I'm not, I'm talking about farmers, but I think the same applies for indigenous groups and 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 for for looking at also how do we involve children's opinions in some of the decisions that we're making. So this is uh, it doesn't apply just to the to work in the food system, but to basically anybody else's work uh, when when it's a multi stakeholder process. <laughs> Afton, all of our discussion so far has implicitly assumed progress is possible. And I think most people who care deeply about our planet implicitly believe in it. Otherwise, why bother? But lately, that belief is being severely tested. Brexit and the rise of the right in Europe, and most recently, the Trump presidency in the States, are all giving progressives and liberals great anxiety about uh, progress in the future. What do you think about the idea of progress and the idea that we can make a positive difference in the world, <laughs> especially with respect to the food system? Yeah, I actually, so um, I was invited to France a year and a half ago uh, to give a presentation at a conference where the theme was progress. Um, and and so I have a lot to say here. I think What's interesting is we, I think we should ask different questions to ourselves of, you know, in this 21st century framing of progress. The first thing that comes to mind is like, do we think that we're progressive when worldwide obesity has tripled since 1975? Is that okay? Is that progressive? Is it progressive that uh, more and more people eat highly processed foods that is creating this problem? Uh, you know, is that progressive? Or the fact that you know, malnutrition and, and undernutrition, sorry, is, is going up again. And that we thought that we were, we were actually starting to lower the undernutrition rates of globally, but it's actually increasing. <laughs> or that, you know, when we destruct wild habitats and then we wonder why we are having all these problems with zoonotic diseases. I mean, so that to me is like, okay, is that progressive? I, I just, in my head, um, it just, it, there's such a paradox there. So I would say that there's a lot of people working with progressive ideas, but 
in many of these larger scale kind of megatrends, uh, it, it, that's kind of, to me, where it's easy to go down into a very dark place uh, when, you, when you start to kind of understand that uh, we haven't progressed on certain things where, where we should have done better. So <laughs> our, it, it does the idea of progress contribute to you know, a, a making difference in the world? I think we just have to understand what that actually means in a 21st century context. What do you think overall? Are we going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these challenging problems? What gives you hope? What keeps you going when things are looking dark? Yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of, I mean, again, I, I'm very positive. Maybe you can hear it in my voice. I'm a very positive person and I have a pretty positive outlook on things. So what does, what keeps me going? Yeah, I think it's one that just recognizing my privilege um, and, and realizing that I am one of few people in, on this planet who has been able to to travel so extensively and meet people from different cultures, experience different realities. So I think it's that kind of seeing examples of human resilience around the world that um, to me is really inspiring, but also kind of it tells us that we can thrive in the, you know, the harshest of environments, in, in the darkest of times, that somehow we, we as a species, we've found ways out of this before. But again, I also think that, you know, just being hopeful is not, a, you know, it's not a strategy. It's, it has to be coupled with some kind of action. Um, so there, I mean, in order to not just think, oh, okay, everything will be better because we've done this before. The human species has overcome many challenges. Uh, we'll get ourselves out of this. But also just to to be around a lot of people who are actually doing really cool stuff and interesting stuff and impactful things. I think that if you don't surround yourself with with that and, and see that there, you know, people are making this kind of uh, commitments to to change, then I think it's easy to <laughs> to surround yourself with the media that is can be really, really uh, dark and where you hear about these stories of of you know, that doesn't give you hope. <laughs> so I think it's just being being surrounded by these these really great people who are doing great work. And then I think also um, looking back in history and also under, learning about and understanding these pivotal moments in human history that have kind of taken us to a new place um, and, and, you know, shaped a, a, a new direction. Um, so I think having, being able to kind of navigate between the past, the present, and the future is really important. I guess that's what keeps me ho gives me hope. <laughs> um, who outside the food system are some of the thinkers on sustainability and our future who you really admire and why? Yeah, <laughs> uh, that could be a very long list. Um, outside the food system, I think it's, again, here it's just important to say how much I do look outside the food system. So I, I get most of my inspiration and a lot of information from from outside of the food system. So who who are the big ones for me? Well, I think in terms of looking at just systems thinking in general, I really follow the forum for the future. And this is a 
a not-for-profit organization based in the UK. They, they do work globally, but they're leading a lot of work around systems change in whether it be in, in fashion or in, in the food system, for example. And I was very lucky to be a part of their School for Systems Change base camp, where there was about uh, 15 of us who came together from around the world, all different, all people working with them, um, you know, systemic change from very different perspectives. And we really kind of learned new methodologies of, of new tools that we can apply to our work. And that was really inspiring. And, and there I, I learned from people who are working with, you know, education systems, health systems, etc. So I think that in its in a way, we kind of we're actually speaking the same language, despite the fact that our just our lenses are different. Um, so that's that's one of the one of the kind of organizations that I and we'll put that in the show notes. We'll get a, a URL link for that. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so another one that I really like following, and I've done some collaboration with scientists there, but just in general. So the Stockholm Resilience Center, uh, which is at the University of Stockholm, they're doing really interesting work there around like you know speculative futures, trying to understand how how we actually uh, design the futures that we want to see. Um, so this field of, you know, future science really helps us visualize the different scenarios of where we might be going. How do we build these desirable futures? How do we, you know, move away from a dystopian future? Um, so there's some really interesting uh, work being done there. And another organization that I really like to follow is the Finnish government's innovation agency, and they're called Citra. And they do a lot of work around megatrends. Um, so they have been engaged in this work for quite some time now. And every year they're publishing like megatrends that are affecting the world we live in and our daily lives. And they're amazing communicators. So they bring this down to a level that's not like super high level that is hard to understand, but actually help people to understand what the megatrends mean to their work or in their, you know, to their careers or in the lives of children, for example. So I think that's really, that's really interesting. Another one that I really like is the podcast called Future Tense, and it's from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And that's basically a podcast that talks about the future and, and looks at the future from different perspectives. And Every show is so different and, and it really, if anyone who's just interested in the future and the future of dot, dot, dot. It's a great name, Future Tense. <laughs> yeah, it's A fantastic. tense future. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's really, it's a really good show. And I'd highly recommend that one to all of your listeners who are, um, you know, interested in, in the future. And I'm sure everyone is. So those are some, I could keep going on, but, uh, but I think that it's some food for thought there. And, and what advice would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenge of the 21st century imperative and maintaining their hope? Yeah, I think, I mean... Be critical um, whenever a new solution is presented, or or you know a new something someone is trying to say that they've you know f found the silver bullet. Be critical and and ask yourself you know how will this transform our current situation, or will it solidify the the status quo and business as usual, or will it actually you know help us to get to the root of a problem? And I think that it's important 
to also understand what you can do about it from your other your professional background um in your career uh in your personal life because i think we all have something to contribute some have you know more power than others but what are you going to do with that i think it's also what kind of legacy you're going to leave leave behind um you know when at the end of your life are you going to look back and say i i was able to to do things that actually had a hum- an impact uh, on society on the environment or can you look back in your life and say that you actually contributed to the problem so i think it's it is um it is important to frame it in that way so i believe that we all can do the you know have these small actions in our life but again if you have if you're in a position of power you really assess what you can do there because not all of us are in those positions finally i'd like to ask you three rapid fire questions to wrap up our interview first question what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to people yeah um i have four <laughs> so factfulness by hans rosling um invisible women by carolyn um Criado perez um hungry city by carolyn Steele, uh and the way we eat now by b wilson oh those are great second question if you had the power to implement one change one innovation or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly increasing food security and sustainability what would it be and why yeah, I think I'd go back to something that I mentioned earlier is around um public procurement and understanding that if you I mean if you're in a system where you you have a strong public sector uh, presence then look at what you know how purchasing can actually change dietary patterns how you can also introduce people to new healthier and sustainable foods um so that would kind of go to on on the school in schools and hospitals in public canteens uh daycares all these kinds of things then you can actually have a pretty large impact on encouraging sustainable dietary behavior in many citizens that's that's effective third question if you could publish a full-page spread in the Sunday New York Times or The Guardian, closer to where you live, of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? Yeah, um, <laughs> so actually it would be graphic um, and because I think we, we, we don't have enough good graphics around what we talk a lot about sustainable and healthy diets, but what does that actually mean? Um, and what does that look like? And is it is it does it taste good? So I would have this graphic, um, different kinds of graphics, looking at different kinds of meals, not just charts and charts and saying this is the CO two emissions associated with uh, with a cow or, or with a piece of beef or with a potato, but actually looking at what it what that meal is going to look like on your plate to show people that this is not a sacrifice, that this is something that actually you can you can eat amazing food if you. You make some some changes in your diet and that it can be it can be really good and tasty and hopefully uh, be something that you want to eat as opposed to you feel forced to eat so i think just to have that really breaking it down in a way that's accessible for people to uh, to understand the different dishes that that are healthy and sustainable that they can make at home that's great and finally is there anything you'd like to ask of our listeners yeah, I mean, I think because your your listeners are probably uh, 
maybe a few of them, but not all of them are, are working directly with food food systems. So I would say, you know, consider how your work and um, the work that you're doing directly or indirectly um, relates to improving health and the health of our planet, but also human health. And, you know, what you can, what you can actually influence because the beautiful and interesting thing of working with food is that everyone has a relationship to it, uh, whether it's in their personal or professional lives. So, um, try to understand what the impact you have, uh, might be. And before we sign off, can you let listeners know what social media links they can find you on and how they might connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find me at uh, Afton Halloran, uh, so A-F-T-O-N-H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N. And I also have a website, and it's uh, aftonhalloran.com. Um, and then I also um, am the host of a podcast uh, for the Nordic Council of Ministers, and it's called Nordic Talks. And you can find that podcast on um, Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. So we'll put all those on the show notes for people. Great. Thank you very much. That was a real pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I did. Thank you so much. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.